There is indeed much to be thankful for this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Before we get started, let us go to the Lord in prayer before we open his word. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your amazing grace uh, put on display uh, before the world. To us individually, Lord, who are born again, for your many mercies, Lord, I, we thank you for, for all of those things, Lord. I pray that today, this morning, Lord, your uh, kingdom will be furthered. Um, your people will hear from you. Hearts will be convicted. Lord, you will change us by the power of your spirit. Be with me as I proclaim your word, Lord. May it be all of you. And may again your people be edified, Lord, and may Christ be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 14. That's where we're going to start. Psalm chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Follow along as I read it. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand or act wisely, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It feels like maybe in our day, we are constantly reminded of this fact. Man is corrupt to the core and deserving of God's wrath. And we know from Scripture and the world around us that God's wrath is continually being revealed in the consequences of sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, Romans 1 says. But God's wrath will eventually be revealed in its finality at Christ's return. So how does someone who suppresses the truth, who hates the truth, who doesn't recognize or fails to recognize the truth, even when it's staring them straight in the face, how can someone like that escape the wrath of a holy God? How do any of us, for that matter, escape the wrath of a holy and perfectly righteous God? How can someone escape the righteous wrath of God and become what Scripture describes as an overcomer? How is that possible? And from the text we just read, it would seem impossible, and not just that text, but many like it. And without the Holy Spirit actively working in the sinner's heart, it is impossible in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. The problem is not that man is without some knowledge of God. It's that he rebels against the knowledge he does have. 
All of God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The point being, man is without excuse. To deny God's existence is foolish. And in that same chapter, Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And rather than coming to God on his terms, man would much rather invent gods of their own making, whether it be in false religion, money, power, the result of which, Paul goes on to say, is a debased mind, a mind that doesn't function. God gives people over to their lusts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. And all that obviously sounds very, very familiar. People do a lot of crazy things and believe a lot of crazy things. The lengths to which a sinner will go to preserve or hold on to their sin is limitless. But it's exactly what you believe and in whom you believe and put your faith in that will either put you under the wrath of God or save you from it. You will either be an overcomer or you will be overcome by the world. Turn over to John, 1 John chapter 5. That's going to be our main text for this morning. 1 John chapter 5. And John is going to help us understand this very thing, and he gives us a few things to consider to see if those who say they are truly in the faith are really in the faith. And what John helps us understand is that if you say you believe in Jesus Christ and have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there are a few things that need to accompany that confession. Throughout the previous chapters of 1 John, John has been laying out for us what the Christian life should look like. Our duty to God, our duty to one another, which is summed up in love. Because God loved us, he sent his only son to die in our place that we might live through him. We love, right? Because he first loved us. And this is really a summary of what John has been talking about throughout this entire letter. And I've separated them into three elements or characteristics uh, that should be evident in someone's life who professes to be a Christian. How can we know we are true sons and daughters of God? Right? What should our lives look like? And the title of today's message is, Who is it that overcomes the world? And there's the three points. Um, a true child of God or an overcomer will have these three. They will love the Lord Jesus Christ. They will love the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they are truly born again. And two, an overcomer loves those born of God, right? Other believers. And three, an overcomer or someone who says they are a Christian loves God and obeys his commandments, obeys his commandments. Follow along as I read in 1 John chapter 5, this first section, these five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves who has, whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone 
who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So let's look at verse 1. Again, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And here's the first thing we must recognize and affirm if we call ourselves a Christian, and he starts with your Christology. What you know, and not just what you know, but what John is getting at here, what you believe to be true about Christ, that truly is the matter of the issue, right? It's the heart of the issue. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You must be born of God. But just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth, your spiritual birth is all an act of God as well. It's a supernatural work done in the human heart. You can't create spiritual life. Even the faith you use to believe is a gift of God. And just as a physical baby is born into a family, when you are born again, we are born into a family or the family of God. The Greek word used here for believes means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. It is our belief and faith in Christ that is the result of being born again. And as one very well-known pastor has said, continual faith is the result of the new birth, not its cause. So how do we know someone has been born of God? Because of the faith that God grants to us. And what kind of faith does God grant to us? It is a persevering faith, a faith that cannot die or be lost. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There are no unbelieving believers, only those who persevere to the end. To say it another way, it's about what you confess to be true about Christ. And that confession takes place in the heart, which results in a transformed life. And a few verses earlier, John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And of course, we know that there is a faith that isn't genuine, that is not saving. You may know someone who has claimed to be a believer for years and then almost suddenly turns their back on the faith and on Christ Or it may be a situation where this person's life doesn't reflect what we know to be true about Christ and those who follow him, right? What about that? What about those who seem to be so spiritual and dedicated to the church, and then they walk away? And Jesus encountered many of these kinds of people in his own ministry. And we are warned throughout Scripture to not only look at for false believers and false teachers, but also to self-introspection to check our own hearts to see if we are truly in the faith as well. In chapter 2 of this same letter, John mentions those that leave the church and break fellowship, and he links those false believers to false knowledge of Jesus Christ. He calls them antichrists. They have a corrupted view 
of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 18 of this same letter, it says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, and here it is, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So why did this happen? They went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. As one theologian comments on this verse, their professed faith was never true saving faith. Saving faith is no mere intellectual knowledge of gospel fact, but involves a wholehearted, permanent commitment to Jesus as Lord, Savior, Messiah, and God incarnate. They fail John's test right from the beginning, which is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, right? God in human flesh. And the evidence that John gives is that they left. They went out from among us, he says, right? They broke fellowship. They were never genuine to begin with. And the question to ask ourselves is, have we merely given mental assent to the person of Jesus Christ? Intellectual knowledge about Christ is not enough to save anyone. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and follow him. And the result of that is a transformed heart and mind that has a genuine love of others, a love for the people of God, right? as John is going to point out for us. So we have one of the evidences of someone who is born again, right? a true believer, which is a right biblical understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ right? and faith in him. But John isn't finished. And this brings us to our second element of the true son or daughter of Christ. John tells us, look at our text, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If you say you love God, then that love is manifested in your love of other Christians. Which is to say, if someone professes to love God, but their life is not characterized by loving others, other Christians, then that claim is false. It's a false claim. Those religious leaders of Jesus' day claim to know God. To be experts in the law, but did they really know him? Of course not. They were false teachers. They were full of pride. And Jesus even tells them that they are full of dead men's bones, whitewashed tombs, right? Full of wickedness. They looked good on the outside, but in, on the inside, they were totally corrupt. Turn over to 2 Timothy for a moment. Let's flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul lays this out for Timothy. Starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? For people will be lovers of self, oh, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, 
heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Is that all? The list goes on. And here it is. Paul says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How do they slip by, right? Having the appearance of godliness. They appear to be godly, but denying its power. So what do you love? What do you love? Is your love for God and his people, or the lack thereof, that reveals a true disciple of Christ, right? Versus a false one. It reveals the condition of your heart. You can turn back to our text. Looking at verse 2. By this we know. Here's how we know. By this we know that we love the children of God. Again, it's not intellectual knowledge, but an intimate knowledge. When we love God and obey his commandments, says John. Loving God and obeying his commandments. I like what Oswald Chambers says. The Lord does not give me rules, but he makes his standard very clear. If my relationship to him is that of love, I will do what he says. If I hesitate, it is because I love someone I have placed in competition with him. And who is that? He says, namely, myself. It's true. It's really two sides of the same coin. If you say you love God, you love the people of God. This is a reoccurring theme for John in this letter. And he essentially says the same thing a little earlier in chapter 3. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And again, a very familiar portion of Scripture in the Gospel of John. Jesus makes this very clear. He says, by this, people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you are truly born again, you love God and you love others. But also, your life will be characterized by obedience. Obedience. You obey his commandments. And this really brings us to the final characteristic of someone who claims to be a Christian, and it's really the rest of this section that deals with it. Are you obedient to his commandments? Are you obedient to his commandments? We don't always obey perfectly, but the direction of our lives should be marked by a willingness to obey, not out of self-reliance or reluctantly. For those of us who have children, (laughs) we understand the response we get sometimes. When we ask our children to do something, right? Maybe just to be obedient in a task, clean your room, take out the trash. Instead of responding in maybe a positive way (laughs) or an understanding way, um, there may be some complaining. Maybe there's some eye rolling involved. That doesn't make a parent very happy. But do we respond that way to God when he asks us to be obedient? Do we complain? That is not how God wants us to obey his commands. Right? And we don't 
obey legalistically either, um, where our hearts are not involved. Instead, we are to rely on the Spirit's provision of grace to help us to obey. Someone has said, supernatural fruit requires a supernatural source. Our salvation is a work of God, and the fruit that is produced is produced by him. It's, that's a work of God as well. And who gets the glory for all of that? He does. Right? This is just a part of how we love God. And then look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. We keep his commandments. And his commandments aren't burdensome. Those who love God, John says, love the people of God, and this is the love. This is it. It's not some secret. It's not hidden. Right? It's plain for all to see. We keep his commandments. Again, it's about obedience. John repeats this again. This is what loving God means. The idea of keeping his commandments is of continual or constant obedience. Right? It is your way of life. All that God has asked of us is written in the pages of Scripture. Right? It's our divine instruction. To be obedient to God's command means that he is in charge and not us. And we don't just obey. We genuinely, with joy, right, with all our heart, obey. Contrary to what the world and culture will tell you, that it's all about fulfilling your needs, Right? The world says, give me what I want and affirm all of my sinful desires. Right? Give me glory. And John says, no. No. It's all about him. And our love for him is demonstrated in our obedience to him. It is a love that is active. This is a call to self-sacrificial love. And this really this isn't anything new. In the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. Right? It should be our delight to obey our Lord. And we can by his power, right? not in our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit. And why is that, why is that so important for us to understand? Because in our own strength, the same, these same commandments that Jesus is speaking of would destroy you. They would be what he calls a burden, right? They are not burdensome to us, but if you're doing it in your own strength, they are a burden. And John says his commands are not burdensome. In other words, they are not irritating. They are not bothersome. They are not cruel. But for the true believer, they are a delight. If God has called us to something, he will enable us to accomplish the task. His commandments come with his enablements. So in what ways are his commands not burdensome? His commands are not burdensome because if you are in Christ, you have a new nature. I want to give you two reasons just quickly here just to consider. And John sums it up in two sentences. And one of those is, like I said, you have a new nature. Uh, think for a moment and remember what you were like, what your spiritual state was like before God saved you. 
right? How does Scripture define our fallen state? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 again. This time up in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 up in verse 1. So what were we in our fallen state? Dead in our trespasses and sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. What were we doing? We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he says it right here, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our lives reflected what we loved. We were like everyone else, headed for wrath. The consequences of our sin go far beyond our own little circle, go far beyond our own unhappiness, um, despair. Sin affects our relationships with other people, with creation itself, the Bible says, and most importantly, our relationship to a holy God. Sorry, give me one second. <laughs> before we were saved, before Christ saved us, we were children of wrath, deserving of God's punishment, not able or desiring to obey his commandments. For the unbeliever, his commands are burdens. But Ephesians continues. Look at the next verse, verse 4, if you're still there. God has to do something. He has to intervene. And he says, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Wow. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us us in Christ Jesus. He made us alive together with Christ, right? In other words, you are a new creation. You have a new nature. And it is because of our new nature, the indwelling spirit, that we are able, that we are empowered to obey his commands with joy. And the second reason his commands are not burdensome to the believer is because they are given in love. They are given in love by a loving father, and they are to be received in love. And just as a way of contrast, turn over to Genesis. Genesis for a moment, chapter 2. It's kind of a long way to go, but there's a point. Genesis chapter 2, down in verse 15. It's all very familiar. Adam and Eve... In the garden, the Lord, took, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, here it is, here's his commandment. You, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the world only looks at verse 17. Right? That's what people tend to remember, right? 
Our focus tends to gravitate on what God has not commanded or what God commanded you not to do instead of what God has graciously provided. And in spite of everything, you are free to do and enjoy. The unregenerate heart says, you see, God is restrictive. Look at what he withholds from you. God isn't really good, or he would let you eat from that tree. And that is how Satan approaches Eve. Look down at chapter 3. Down in chapter 3, here comes the serpent. And he says to the woman, you see it? He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And like always, Satan twists what God has said. But where does Satan start? Verse 17. He focuses our attention on what God told her not to do, what not to eat. Eve kind of corrects him. She says, we may eat of any, of, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent replies, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So it's a direct assault on the character of God, right? God isn't telling you the whole truth. He isn't protecting you. He just doesn't want you to be powerful like he is. And of course, we know how that ended. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Sin enters the world plummets the entire human race into darkness and eternal hell. So what's my point? My point is that a loving father doesn't tell his children to stay away from train tracks or a busy street because he is a killjoy, but because he loves them and wants to protect them from potential injury, right? And death. God's commands are not burdensome because we understand that God's commands come from his love for us. You can, you can turn back to our text. And John's going to, John encapsulates the, all of what we have just been going over in two sentences. He began with belief, belief in Jesus Christ, and he ends with belief. Verse 4 For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. It's an, that's an amazing, amazing statement. John sums up and puts the final stamp on what he's been explaining. It is the faith that God grants to us that overcomes the world, not blind faith, not faith in ourselves, but faith in a person, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Are you an overcomer? Or does it feel like the world is overcoming you? Maybe there is someone whom you refuse to forgive. Holding on to bitterness and anger, living with unrepented of sin in your life is not living the life of an overcomer. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. If you are not feeling much like an overcomer, then perhaps you are neglecting to obey God's commands. And if his commands are burdensome to you, then cry out to God for the faith that overcomes. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ. You must be born of God, he says. Born is in the perfect tense. In other words, because God has given you new life, you are a new creation. You can't claim to belong to Christ and live any way you want. Do anything you want, right? Resembling the world more than you resemble the Savior. And look at our text. This is the victory that has overcome the world. World meaning the evil world systems. And what is it? Again, our faith. The world is in such a helpless state that God, again, had to intervene, and he did so by way of the cross, right? This is not a truce. The cross was not a truce between the light and darkness. This is not a temporary victory as if the enemy has a chance to win. This is a total annihilation of the enemy by God himself. God has conquered the enemy through his son, Jesus Christ. And Christ is victorious. And because Christ is victorious, so are we. Right? Who is it that overcomes the world, John asks. Look at verse 5. Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There is only one way that a believer overcomes the world and enters heaven. And that is through Jesus Christ. It is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. To believe means that Jesus has your full, unreserved trust. To believe that what the Bible says about Christ is trustworthy, that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to save, and God's wrath has been satisfied. And our faith may seem small at times, but even in those low times, we do not completely cease believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? It was Job that cried out in the midst of his trials, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Have you placed your faith in the finished work of Christ? He overcame. He conquered death on your behalf, so that in him you may have eternal life. He came to earth in human flesh, lived the perfect life, a life you could not live without sin, was crucified, rose again on the third day, meaning his sacrifice was sufficient, was acceptable. And if you repent of your sin and you place your faith in him, you will be forgiven and can live the life of an overcomer. The one who overcomes believes that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And to, again, to overcome means to conquer to be victorious or to prevail in the face of obstacles. To be a true disciple of Christ, to be a true son or daughter of Jesus, is to be an overcomer, right? That is who we are. That is who you are if you are in Christ, because of Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty work 
of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that Christ's life, his death, was an acceptable sacrifice. Lord, that, was, that he fulfilled everything that we couldn't. And he did that because he loved you and he loved us, Lord. What an amazing, amazing thing. Lord, I pray that we spend some time thinking on these things, Lord, that we look at our own hearts to see where perhaps we may not have been as quick to obey as we should. Or maybe, Lord, we're just not being obedient, Lord. May you convict us of that as well, Lord. May we be quick to seek out your face, Lord, and repent. We know that you are faithful to forgive, Lord. You are a loving Father and want to forgive. Your arms are wide open. May we run to them, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.